0: Amen. Amen. As I read through Psalm 3, I couldn't help but reflect that there would be no enemy more painful than your own child. I imagine that the babe that you raised and nurtured, the child that you played with and you bandaged, the youth who cleaned out your pantry and your wallet, turning against you and treating you as an enemy would be one of the most painful experiences to bear. How does a relationship turn from love to hate? How is it that a child who owes you their very life would despise your life? If one of my children wanted me dead, I think I would do anything to change that situation. I would be desperate in my attempts to win back the love of my child. There would be no bridge I wouldn't cross, no pain I wouldn't bear to fix that relationship, to have my child back. But can you imagine the pain of knowing that your child wanted you dead and there was no bridge that they wouldn't cross, no pain that they wouldn't bear to see you dead? And then imagine the pain of knowing that your child wasn't acting alone, but in fact... Your childhood won the hearts and minds of others. An army of people, your people, who will want you dead. Because that's exactly what happened to King David. And today as we look at Psalm 3, that is exactly the situation he is facing. King David had many sons to many wives and one of those sons, Amnon, raped his half-sister and then sent her away. Her full brother, Absalom, took revenge upon him by killing Amnon. So Absalom killed his half-brother to avenge the raping of his sister. But again, remember, if you were King David, they're both your sons. David understood why he took revenge and he let him live. But he avoided contact. He kept him away from the palace. He didn't want to see him. And so the revenge killing was stopped, but the family was still broken. Now, eventually there was family restoration, but as you'll know from your own families, sometimes restoration is only skin deep, isn't it? Sometimes you can see someone at Christmas, you can chat in a friendly way, but you know that it's only skin deep. Sometimes there's formal restoration, but there's still healing that needs to happen. And that is also what happened in King David's family. Absalom was restored to the king eventually, but his resentment remained. And his resentment was now aimed squarely at his father, the king. So he sought to win the hearts and minds of the people so that he would be made king instead of his father. And the upshot of all that is David was forced to run away. He was forced to flee Jerusalem before his own son and conspirators came who had put him to death. Now, whilst I'm not looking at that section today, if you wanted to read that, a uh, bit of background, you could look it up later in uh, 2 Samuel, chapters 13 to 15. But I tell you all of that because that is the context for our psalm. Context for Psalm 3, which we're looking at. Uh, you can find it on page 543 of the Bibles, if you haven't turned there already. Psalm 3 on page 543. And the opening line of Psalm 3, written in italics, says this, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And there's our context. King David running away out of Jerusalem, leaving his throne before his son who wanted to kill him to take his throne his own son wanted to kill him and take his throne i bet that puts our family struggles in perspective doesn't it and the first thing david notes in this psalm is how many are the enemies of the king That's my first point. How many are the enemies of the king? Listen to this in verse 1. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Many foes, many rising up, many saying God will not deliver him. Many, many, many. Absalom had won the hearts of the people. The people wanted David dead. The people wanted Absalom king. The king's own people were now his enemies. And they are saying that not even God's going to deliver him. I want you to feel the force of that. Can you imagine that? Your own people rising up against you. All the time knowing your son wants to take your life. It's not a foreign power rising up. It's not a foreign army. It's his own family rising up against God's chosen king. It is the people in rebellion against their king and against their God. Now, the thing about rebellion, I guess, and politics, it's all about numbers, isn't it? If you've got the numbers, you can topple governments and kingdoms. And it looks like Absalom has the numbers. He's won friends. He's influenced people. The kingdom is now his. He's moved into the palace. He controls the army. And David and the men with him are on the run. The numbers are against David. Now, having four kids means I, I kind of get that sometimes. The numbers are against me at home. Sometimes the kids all agree together. They all want to go to Hangdog. And they present a united front. But as a parent, there's that awesome moment, that awesome power. Numbers don't matter. The moment when you yield that awesome power of no. No can crush any rebellion can end any plans, at least while they're young. And David knows this well. He knows that as king he doesn't have the power anymore. He can't stop this rebellion, but he knows who can. And that's my second point. David knows how great is the God who answers the prayers of his king. How great is the God who answers the prayers of the king. And this is the thing that I think most strikes me about David through his whole life in the midst of his most desperate battles, in the midst of his own sin, he never seems to lose that perspective on who God is and what God can do. And so we read in verses 3 to 4. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. God has the power of no. If God says no to this rebellion, then it's finished. And at that moment, on the run, a desperate man with few friends, many foes, he calls on God. He knows that God has been his shield and protector. He knows that God is the one who lifts up his head and he knows that it is the Lord who rules from his holy mountain. And that is what Absalom failed to realise. See, Absalom, he thought the palace was the seat of power. He thought if he had control of the throne, he ruled in Jerusalem. He thought if he won the hearts of the people and took the palace, he would be the undisputed ruler. But he forgot the temple on God's holy mountain and the God who dwelt there. You see, David still had an inside man. And I'm not talking about his friend and advisor, Hushai. David called on the great God who answers the prayers of the king. And he did that with confidence that God would once again answer his prayers. And listen to what he says in verses 5 to 6. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I'll not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. One of my difficulties is I'm I'm just a poor sleeper. I wake up in the early hours of the morning and my next sleep cycle doesn't kick in till 6am. I can be kept awake by heat by kids waking up or just sleeping on my own arm. So if I'd been chased out of Jerusalem by my son who was wanting to kill me, I wouldn't be sleeping. But David tells us here, he can lay down and sleep. He doesn't fear, though there are tens of thousands against him. Now, I don't want you to imagine there that David is naive. He he knows what's going on. He fled Jerusalem. He took the wisest course of action in running away. And yet he knows, even on the run, it is the Lord who is his shield and the Lord who will sustain him. He was wise enough to run away and he was faithful enough to pray. But I want to say that David can do those things because he is God's chosen king. He is the Messiah. This is not some sort of guarantee to you that if ever you're in trouble and you pray, everything will work out fine. It was the king of Israel who's being hunted by his enemies, his own people. But he also knows that he has very specific promises of God on his side. And so we come to his prayer in verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. That's his prayer. That God would save him, deliver him from what he must face. David is in trouble that goes way over his head and so he calls on God to deliver him. Now I'm going to read verse 7 using a different English Bible translation. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version where it says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, the reason I've changed translation there is that the English Standard Version, like pretty much every other major English version except the NIV, picks up the important word for. David is not praying, as it appears in our text, save me, strike my enemies, break their teeth. No, his prayer is arise, save me, for you strike my enemies and you break the teeth of the wicked. David calls on God because he's seen God strike his enemies. Many times he's seen God, break the teeth of their enemies. He calls on God, whom he's seen shatter his enemies, to once again rescue him. And incidentally, he actually doesn't want God to shatter his enemies. Uh, if you read on in 2 Samuel, you'll learn he actually tells his commanders, don't hurt my son. He doesn't want his son shattered. He's not baying for blood. This is a prayer for deliverance, not a prayer for vengeance. All of which brings me to my third point. This somewhat unexpected final verse where we see David ask for blessing for his enemies. So, verse 8 From the Lord comes deliverance, may your blessing be on your people. Now, that is very unexpected. Who are the enemies of the king? It's his people. The people of Israel, God's people, the people of Israel, the people the king rules over, the people of God are the enemies of the king. And David prays for deliverance from them and he prays for God's blessing upon them. He prays for his enemies. Deliver me, Lord, from those murderous rogues who are seeking my life and bless them. That's an extraordinary prayer. It is the prayer of a man who doesn't want to die and it is the prayer of a man who loves the people of God. Do you see how extraordinary that is? See, most kings deal with traitors in a pretty straightforward way. You rebel, I kill you. But David asked God to bless them. Deliver me, Lord, but bless my enemies. Now, again, if you want to read that later, you can. It's in 2 Samuel 17 to 19. But God did deliver the king. And he blessed the people by bringing them back under the rule of the king. But it wasn't without cost, including the death of his son Absalom. Every act of rebellion has its price. Now, we've had a quick look at that account and the psalm. But I wonder if you've picked up on the similarities between King David in that psalm and King Jesus. To start with, the obvious similarity between Jesus and David is that they're both messiahs. Messiah is basically the same word as Christ or king. And although he didn't live in a palace, Jesus came as king. Another similarity is that they both faced a multitude of enemies. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but David's woes were as a result of his own sin. Uh, God had told him that he would bring this calamity upon him because he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. Jesus also had a number of enemies, though he did not sin. But here's the really interesting bit in both cases, who were the enemies? It was God's people. was actually God's own chosen people who were the enemies of the king in both cases. Both were men of prayer. Both prayed to God for deliverance. I can't help but think of Jesus in that garden, praying if it's possible that he might avoid this coming death and yet at the same same time saying, not my will but yours. Both men... Prayed for deliverance. But here's a very clear difference. David was in danger in Jerusalem and so he fled quite wisely. Jesus was in danger in Jerusalem and he walked straight into it. The danger was in Jerusalem and that's where Jesus went. And as he hung on that cross, he prayed. For his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus also prayed that God would bless his enemies. And this is where we can rightly understand this psalm. Jesus sought deliverance from death, but he died. Why? Because every act of rebellion has its price. But of course, Jesus didn't die for his rebellion, because he didn't rebel, he died for our rebellion. Yet Jesus was delivered from death by resurrection. He entrusted himself to God, he allowed himself to be killed, to bear the full penalty of sin, and then entrusted that God the Father would deliver him out of death. And incredibly, it was at the hands of his enemies he was put to death. And by that same death, the blessings flowed to those enemies. As they called for the blood of an innocent man, they proved their guilt. And as that blood was shed, as the innocent King Jesus died, he died as a sacrifice that would take away their guilt if only they would call on him and believe this good news. So Jesus fulfills this psalm as the King assailed by his enemies, his own people, and as the King who calls on God for deliverance, and finally, as the King who brings blessing to his people and that brings me to my final point where do we fit where do we fit in this psalm well the first thing to note is that the role of king is taken and the king doesn't need an understudy no in this psalm we are the foes of verse 2 the assailants of verse 6 the enemies of verse 7 and God's people of verse 8 By nature, we are the enemies of God. But by grace, if you call on Jesus as your Lord, you are also the people of God. See, eventually David was delivered from his enemies. He was restored as king in Jerusalem. And at that moment, the fate of his enemies was sealed. Their judgment was postponed until Solomon took the throne. David's son was killed in the battle, and David made sure that the rest of his enemies were eventually dealt with. But when he returned, the people had a choice to submit to his rule and enjoy the blessings of living under the king or continue in rebellion and face the consequences. Jesus died, but he too was restored, delivered, restored to his place in heaven as the great king of all. And at that moment too the fate of his enemies was sealed, though judgment was postponed until the great day of judgment when all people will be judged according to how they respond to Jesus as king. But ever since his ascension, people have had the choice as well. Submit to his rule, enjoy the blessings of living under the king or continue in rebellion and face the consequences. That's the question you need to work out as you think, how does verse 8 apply to me? The only option that isn't left to you is friend of God. All of us are guilty of sinning against God. All of us have made ourselves his enemies by our sin. But someone might object. Someone might say, hang on, our sins, if you can call them out, they're so small, so insignificant. I hope I never forget the day I made Vanessa cry. I can't remember what I said exactly. I was just niggling and poking and teasing. I didn't mean anything by it. I was just teasing in that awful way that comes so naturally to us Australians. Meaning no harm, but causing terrible harm. And then she cried. And we do that to God. We ignore him here. We make fun of him here. We judge his words. I like what he says about love, but I'm not sure he's right about homosexuality. Or I like what he says about law, but I don't like what he says about grace. And I know it doesn't sound very macho, but God's response is grief. You may remember the episode in Matthew 23 or Luke 13 where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. How often have I longed to gather your children together? But you are not willing. The context of that speech is judgment. Jesus longs to gather a people together to rescue them from the judgment we deserve, but so many people, just as they were back then, are not willing. And God is grieved. He's grieved, not because we hurt Him somehow in our rebellion. but because the cross shows us there is no bridge that God would not cross, no pain he would not bear to fix the relationship with us. So we too have a choice. Submit to Jesus, enjoy the blessings of life under the king, or continue in rebellion and face the consequences on that terrible day day of judgment. So if Jesus is not your king, I'm asking you today, submit to him. Submit to Jesus as king. You can escape the judgment that's coming, but only by submitting to Jesus as king. And if you do that, it's not a terrible thing. No, rather you enjoy blessings, all the blessings of life under the good king. You'll enjoy the blessings of forgiveness, the blessings of a king who loves you and seeks your good. And the blessings of living as part of a new family, as part of God's own people. And if Jesus is already your king, then I'm asking you today to consider how great a blessing is yours already. As one of God's own people, you were once an enemy of God by your sin, but you've been delivered by the sacrifice of the king. You've been brought into the family of God's own people. Sure, you can look at this psalm and talk about how to forgive enemies and talk about prayer. But the thing I want you to realise today is just how loved you are. What great extent your king went to to take enemies and make them friends. To bring forgiveness to those deserving judgement and to create a people of his very own. If Jesus is your Lord then I want you to know that you're one of the most blessed and privileged people on this planet.